Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome and uh, to the breakfast and the class that is today sponsored in loving memory and Leilu Nishmat Avraham Ben Mazal uh, and Shalom, sponsored by his grandson Aviran Ben Shetrit, and as well dedicated in loving memory Leilu Nishmat Adina Bat Aviva Vioram uh, Le Shalom, sponsored by her sister Tali Paknush. You know, um, there's a very interesting line that Yaakov Avinu says to, to his children. He talks about the city of Shechem, and he says, Asher lakachti, that I took Shechem biharbi, with my sword, ubikashti, and with my bow. If you look at the Targum Unkulus, he translates it, he says, what does it mean that Yaakov Avinu says that I took Shechem with my sword and with my bow? He, he says in Aramaic, bisloti ubibauti which means with my prayers, right? The sla is siloti, uba'uti, and my, uh, and my requests. That I prayed to God and I asked him uh, for this, uh, you know, to be successful in this battle. So this terminology that Yaakov Avinu uses, that he says, biharbi, with my sword, ubikashti, with my bow, means that Yaakov Avinu was saying that the war of Shechem, so to speak, that land was taken because of the power of tefillah. Rabotai, there's something very special about that. And the Ben Ishchai gives an amazing example, amazing mashal as to how to look at that, uh, at that specific uh, pasuk. He says, there's a guy who's hiking on one of the hiking trails in the mountains. All of a sudden, he starts hearing this low growling sound. Sounds from coming like from a very large animal. He looks around, looks around. He doesn't see until all of a sudden, from behind one of the bushes, stands up on its, uh, on its hind legs, this giant grizzly bear, over six foot tall, mo- mo- you know, monstrous paws, and he starts kind of waving menacingly with his paws in the direction of the hiker. Had that guy, he's no idea what to do. He's uh, flipping out. He thinks of a great idea. You know, he thinks to himself, maybe once before this bear was shot at, and maybe the bear doesn't really know the difference. And maybe if I hold up my walking stick as if it's a rifle, and I go through the motions like I'm leaning in to try and shoot it, maybe it will have had a lived experience where it knows what that is, and, and it will scare off the bear. Anyway, the guy lifts up his, uh, what's it called? He lifts up his, uh, his cane, right, his big walking stick, the bear is looking at him actually quite curiously. What is this guy doing? I've never seen my last meal like, you know, do this before. He lifts up the stick, his walking stick, aims it right at the face of the bear, leans in like he's, uh, he's got his head down the thing, and he pulls his imaginary trigger. All of a sudden he hears, boom! <laughs> and the bear falls down on its feet. The guy can't believe it. What an unbelievable result this is. He sees a man step out from the, from the what's it called, from behind one of the other trees. And he says, you never believed that. Did you just see what happened? I just shot a bear, he says, with a stick. The guy says, Dib, you didn't shoot the bear with the stick. I shot the bear. <laughs> right? Haddai, he's lifting his thing as if it's a gun, shooting the item, thinks that he miraculously shot him with a walking stick. And the guy says, is that what you think happened? You know, and when I stepped out, you thought you should tell me about it? You, don't, you wouldn't, didn't think to ask me if it was me? 
says the Ben Ishchai. Shimon and Levi are roaming the streets of Shechem with their swords out, you know, drawn, slaying the people relatively easily. And it looks to Shimon and Levi as if their walking sticks can fire bullets. And it feels to those people in those moments as if it is the strength and the might of their hands. But how foolish would it be of Shimon and Levi to think that that's what conquered Shechem. And yet, Rabotai, that is something that we do all the time. You know, part of the Israeli narrative today is that when we won impossible to win wars, it was because we could shoot bullets out of sticks. It was because an army that had didn't have the artillery and didn't have the ammunition and didn't have the numbers to be able to rout its enemies, did so in 1648, and it did so in 67, and it did so in 73, Bezat Hashem, many years in the future. All these things that we do, miraculously, unbelievable, right? How does, how does that happen? Well, <laughs> top of the line, what are you talking about? You know, right now, we tell ourselves that we have the most advanced and sophisticated weaponry in the world. And, and the answer is that that actually probably is true. You know, it probably is true that we have this. But if it was your sophisticated weaponry, Rabotai, that was winning you wars, how do you claim that that's what it was when you didn't have sophisticated weaponry? When you were buying uh, rifles and bullets from Czechoslovakia? In 48, right, Israel had a, a close relationship with the, the Czech government, right? And at the time, they, they, sell, they sold them arms, they sold them rifles. Now, Czechoslovakia is known for many things. None of Czechoslovakia's storied past is about their great military might. Right? It's not about their sophisticated weaponry. I mean, there were times, in fact, that the Israeli uh, planes up in the air, they had no bombs to drop. So they were dropping uh, 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 bottles closed with, you know, pressured air, and they would explode, it would make a sound. To think that we win time after time after time, this time because of sophisticated weaponry. The next time it's because of a superior strategy in battle. The time before that it's because uh, we got the jump on them. Yeah, but each time you think, oh, that's the reason, because we got the jump. Well, then how come when they got the jump on us in the Yom Kippur War, how, how, how come then we, we didn't lose? Each time you think you have an answer, a nun, like in the words of the Gemara, we would say, you know, this yochiach, this should prove that that's not the reason. Rabutai, it is true that we have these things, and it is true that we have brave fighters, and it is true that we have sophisticated weaponry, and it is true, and all of it is true. But without the hand of Borei Olam, we are like the man holding up a stick, thinking we shot the bear. And the man sitting there on the side thinking, are you kidding me? How do you not see me? Bore Olam says the same thing. How do you not see me? And when you persist in saying, no, 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 it wasn't you, it was me. You know what happens? When the next bear comes, the hunter, Bore Olam, in this case, says, okay, let's, show me. Show me, show me. Don't you run out of bullets now. Show me, show me how you stick shoots bears. 
And, and, and God lets it wait a little bit longer so that you can see Him. I think there's something very beautiful, therefore, about the mashal, about the example of Yaakov Avinu. You know, when a person prays to God and has tremendous, tremendous uh, connection to Hashem and Emunah, then there's no point in God letting him stew in his problems. Why? Because anyway, you see him, right? It's what we said just now on the fast day. And it will be terem yikre'u before they even call va'ani e'ene I will answer. Now, if you didn't call and God turns up and you don't see God, if that's what happens, if your relationship with God is that when He does for you without you praying for Him, you don't see Him, Hashem says, okay, now I'll make you pray. And then you pray and you think, you know what? I did pray, but it wasn't the praying. It was the sophisticated weaponry. It was the surprise, uh, you know, ambush. It was the, you know, superior, uh, uh, you know, landscape that we had. It was the higher position of the Golan Heights. If each time there's another answer, and I'm not talking just about Israel, I'm talking about you in your business. I'm talking about you in your family. I'm talking about you with your, any issue that a person struggles through. It's, oh, it's you? Oh, okay. Hold on. Let me hold back for a second and show me how you deal with the next bear. Show me how you, your stick shoots bullets. Show me. And then you, next time you wait, God waits an extra half hour. And you sweat. And you pray. Because you realize no bullets are coming out of the stick. And then Borei Olam steps in. And then you're like, oh, I guess, I guess it really does shoot bullets. And then Hashem says, oh, well, that's how it is? Oh, well, then let me give, I'm going to wait next time, not a half hour. I'm going to wait all the way till the end. Until the sword is here. Until Haman signs a decree. Until the Greeks take away from us our religious liberty. That's what it means. Yaakov Avinu says, I took Shechem with my sword and with my bow and arrow. What's the difference between my sword and my bow and arrow? Between my prayers and my requests? Herev is an implement of war that you use in close quarters. You can't kill someone with a sword who's 100 feet away. With an arrow, what do you do? You're shooting someone, dafka that's far. If someone's right in your face, you don't have time to get the arrow set up and he's standing right next to you. Then you use, for close combat, you use a sword. There are two types of prayers, Rabotai. There's a prayer that a person uses in the near distance. And there's a prayer that a person uses when the problem is far away. Yaakov Avinu maybe is praying, right, for far away. But then you have on the ground the Shimon and Levi. They're out there maybe thinking that this is me. And Borei Olam says, okay, so then I can't bring you the Yeshua yet. And the Yeshua needs to come to what? To Kharbi, to close quarters. It needs to be right here like the Lashon of the Gemara. Afilu Even a sharpened sword. On the neck of a person, he should not hold himself back. He should not think that, that Hakadosh Baruch Hu's Rahamim is not coming. But what got you into a situation where it has to be last minute.com? The fact 
that in times prior, the emunah erodes to a place where you think it's all you. And then Hashem says, okay, have a go. Rabotai, I want to share with you an amazing story. Um, in Eretz Israel, there was a time when they were passing the law governing what the law would be with regards to abortions. Now, in Judaism, we consider after a certain amount of time, uh, a child, a baby is, you know, is in the development stage, that, that, that abortion is an act of pure murder. It's a living being, and once that living being is viable, right, then to kill the baby at that stage is... Now, there are exceptions, no doubt. Right? If the baby, Bar Menan, is killing the mother, is a danger to the mother. So the halakha would be, in a case like that, we consider the baby a rodef. But, you know, it's a strange thing. I remember once reading the most strange comment about this. So, it says, America in 2020 is a place where you get nine months to decide if you want to keep a child, but only two weeks to decide if you want to return a dress. Fascinating. Yeah? Now, the crazy thing is, Rabotai, and this is crazy. We live in the land of Israel today, and we have wonderful, you know, uh, beautiful freedoms. But the system of law today in the land of Israel is not the Jewish system of law. So it is a state of Jews, maybe, less than a Jewish state. Now, I'm talking about from a perspective of governance, from a perspective of law. And although it looks very similar on some occasions, because bagats and badats are only one letter off, <laughs> right? They're very close, you know? And there's many laws in the, in, the, in the law of the land of Israel that share terminology and concept on Jewish law, but many obviously that don't. So in the beginning of the state, I think that there were many more that did, and as time went on, um, those laws changed. Think about, as an example, the laws of Shabbat in the state of Israel back in the day versus now. So it was a time when they were making decisions about uh, abortion. And um, the rabbis got together and they, they wanted to come and speak to the government at the time, to uh, uh, the minister at the time that was going to be in charge of deciding whether or not the Israeli government, the system would change its perspective on the legality of abortions and the minimum uh, levels that were required and all the various things that surround that which uh, make sure that it is given the seriousness that it should be given. And the man in charge at the time the, was a sar, his name was uh, um, Shmuel Tamir. He was in charge, the sar Mishpatim at the time. Anyway, so the rabbis are getting together. Rav Michal Stern at the time is on this mishlachat, this group that they're going to go and speak to him. Who else is on the, in this group along with Rav, uh, Rav Michal Stern? A man called Rav Raphael Levine. Who's Rav Raphael Levine? The son of none other than the Sadiq of Yerushalayim, Rav Aryeh Levine. Okay? So the group is getting together and Rav Raphael Levine says to them, he says, listen, if we're going to go, and we're going to try and change their mind and find favor in the eyes of this man. He's not a religious man. The government is not a religious government. 
it's running, there's a separation, so to speak, between church and state. That is how it is, you know, in the state today. So he said, this is something that needs a lot of help in Siata Dishmaya. We could try our best to talk to him, to convince him, to explain. But at the end of the day, God is going to be the one that's going to help. So let's get together thousands and thousands of people and pray to Hashem that they should see it the way that the Torah sees it. They are launching this campaign. People are praying here, there, everywhere. You know, there's groups of children and the women are praying. And, the, everyone, and there's a tremendous outpouring of tefillah for the success of this mission. The group goes to the house of Shmuel Tamir and they sit down. And he says, introduce yourself. This one, that one, this one, that one. Great. And then finally he comes to the last person in the group. Who is your name? My name is Rabbi Rafael Levine. He says, oh, what's your connection with Rav Arya Levine? He says, oh, he's my father. The man, his face lit up. He says, wow, it's so amazing. Rav Arya Levine, he's our rabbi. Rav Arya Levine was very connected with the very different echelons in Israeli society. He used to go around to the army bases in a time when that was not so popular. You know, and he would provide the members of the Lehi were very connected with, uh, with Ravari Levine, actually. They respected him tremendously. And other groups as well. Um, he used to go to the prisons and he would, uh, he would inspire and talk to the criminals to try and lift their spirits, to try and get them to come to Teshuvah. He would visit the, the hospitals uh, that were full, that had lepers. And no one would go there because it's incredibly contagious. And he would go and he would blow the shofar and, and show them that empathy and that kindness. Tremendous tzaddik, Rav Ari Levine, you should read about him. This man, Shmuel Tamir, says, oh wow, you know, they had a lot of respect for him in my house. When I grew up, Rav Ari Levine, he's, he, you know, he's our rabbi, he, he says. I'm so happy to see you here. His face is shining. And Rav Ari Levine says, he says, can I share with you a story? And Shmuel Tamir says, sure. He says, you know, it was many, many years ago in my house. And I remember there was a knock at the door. And there was a young couple that was standing at the door. And they came to speak to my father, uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Aryeh Alava Shalom. They sit down at the table. And I overheard what happened. He says, the husband and wife had, were recently married. The wife had become pregnant. And the husband at the time who was studying to be, studying medicine, realized that if his wife is pregnant and he's not home and he's got the long hours and he's studying to be a doctor, it's just not going to work. You know, there's, there's no way. And he decided that he wants to get an abortion. The wife, on the other hand, felt, what are you talking about? How can we have, we made a child. We, we, the, the kid's growing inside of me. You know, you're going to go be a doctor. You know, and I'm sure she thought of the irony. How could it be that you're going to go to do, study medicine to save lives and the price of doing that is going to be the life inside of me, our own child. How could that be? It doesn't sit well. It didn't. So, so they started arguing and they decided, you know what, let's go and speak to Rav Ari Levine. They respected him very greatly and they said, you know what, let's come and we'll speak to the rabbi. Anyway, so they said, rabbi, this is where we're at. Anyway, the rabbi sits down. He makes them a pot of coffee. They sit down at the table. He's trying to explain so kindly, so gently to the to the husband about the importance of, of uh, human life. He talks to him about the value of, uh, of, uh, of a Jewish family, of a Jewish child. He talks to him about making things work. He talks to him about priorities. And slowly but surely this man, his position, his stance is softening. And after many hours of uh, gentle and kind persuasion, 
um, by the end of that time, um, the father was convinced. He agreed. And they left the house. And that woman had the baby. And they named their child Shmuel Tamir. The man's blood freezes in his veins. He says, what do you mean they named that child Shmuel Tamir? Rabbi Rafael Levine says, ask your mother. The man runs over to the phone, picks up the phone. He says, Ma, is it true? I have someone sitting here telling me a story. Is it true? And the line goes silent. And his mother says, it's true. You don't understand. It was a different time. We were under a lot of pressure. You know, your father. He says, Ma, don't worry about it. It's all fine. Thank you so much. I need to go. I'll call you later. Hangs up the phone. He walks back in the room, sits down at the table. He says, as long as I am in office, the laws allowing for abortion will not change. Nothing will happen on my watch. The rabbis quietly stand up. Thank you so much. <laughs> they leave the house. And the rabbis all turn to Rabbi Rafael Avin and they're like, you drove us crazy. We whipped up the whole country to go and pray. And this whole time you had the ace in the hole in your pocket. You had this story sitting there. You didn't just learn this story now. You knew it for 20 years, for 30 years, for 40 years. Now, why did you drive us all nuts? We were, this one was in the bag. And Rabbi Raphael Levine turns to his friends, to his illustrious friends, and he says, in Yiddish they might say, a story a hin, a story a her. A story here, a story there. You don't accomplish things with stories. You accomplish things with prayers. Rev. Rafael Levine didn't look at his ace in the hole and see a stick that shoots bullets. He understood that the power of that story was the tefillah. He understood as well that there were millions and trillions of tefillot that had stacked up. And sometimes I think of this and it shakes me to my very core. You know, I think about the fact that when I and you go to shul in the morning and we walk through the streets of New York City and we come here and we pray, we're not afraid to carry our talet and tefillin with us. Never felt uh, you know, scared. I never take off my kippah in the street. And I think to myself, oh, Baruch Hashem, thank God we have such a great country, America. But sometimes you have to stop and think. Did that just happen to happen? I think of my grandparents and my great-grandparents in Germany who prayed and prayed and prayed that their children and their grandchildren should be free to practice the religion of the Avot Kedoshim. That's all they prayed for. When they were tortured, when they were rounded up, what was the last prayers of so many people during those years? That things should be different for their kids. In Russia, in Germany, in Poland, in Halab, 
My father had to run away in Iran, where, you know, where they shut everything down, in Iraq, in every one of these countries. What were the prayers of our parents and our grandparents? They were that our, our generation should have the freedom to be able to practice religion. You don't have millions and millions and millions of people praying without an impact. We live in America today, but today, in pretty much anywhere in the world, Jews are free to practice their religion. That tsunami of prayers was Bicharbiu Bikashti. Our parents prayed for us. We need to also pray for our children. We need to stop putting prayers in the bank. We need to pray for their future. We need to pray for our future. Things are going well at work? Fantastic. Use a bow and arrow to fight off the problems before they come to you. Because otherwise, you might wind up having to fight hand-to-hand -hand combat with the sword. And ironically, sometimes it's a prayer and sometimes it's a, right, a request is when, you know, you put in a request for holiday days. But when you have to, they take you in a hospital, in an in ambulance to the hospital, you don't put in a request for holiday days. You sort it out later, right? Those are the two types of prayers. Bikashti ubiharbi. Rabotai, never underestimate the incredible power of a pure prayer. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.